Greetings and welcome to Lobes and Robes, How Neuroscience Can Change the World. This podcast is sponsored by the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior and explores the links between neuroscience and key policy questions today. I'm Susan Carl, a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and I will help lead discussions throughout our series along with Dr. Terry Davidson, director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University and a distinguished professor of neuroscience here. This podcast is for anyone interested in how scientific discovery can make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Lobes and Robes. Today, we're going to have a three-way conversation between three distinguished professors, all of whom study addictive behavior from different perspectives. So on uh, the podcast is Dr. Terry Davidson, the co-host. Hello. Dr. Tony Riley, who we've heard from in a prior episode. And joining us for the first time is Dr. Erdal Taken, who is a professor in the Department of Public Administration and Policy. So welcome, everyone. And Erdal, can you start by talking about your work? Thanks, Susan. And hi, everyone. My name is Erdal Tekin, and I'm an economist with primary research interests in the fields of health economics and economics of crime. Within these fields, my primary work concerns on the analysis of the causes and consequences of risk, risky behavior. So on the one hand, I study the effect of exposure to risk factors such as air pollution, maltreatment, malnutrition early in life, and how these these exposures shape people's outcomes in the domains of health, labor market, and human capital. On the other hand, I also study the effect of public policy programs and interventions designed to uh, reduce these type of consequences. This work really has its roots in this in the seminal work by Michael Grossman in 1972. The Grossman model, as we call it, really opened the way for economists to start thinking about, about risky behaviors and how to incorporate these behaviors into mainstream economic analysis. And my work really has its roots on that work. The Grossman model is important. Not only it emphasizes the distinction between demand for health and demand for health care, but also it, uh, it is important in terms of demonstrating that health is both an investment and a consumption commodity. So what do I mean by that? Health is a consumption good which which contributes directly to an individual's utility. So being healthy is valuable in and of, in, our, in and of itself. But health is also an input into production and generates productive time, which is useful for producing income and, and more health. So initially, we assume an individual is endowed with a certain amount of health capital, which depreciates over time but can be replenished by investments like medical care, diet, exercise, and so forth. And Grossman's model assumes that the individual makes decisions about how much to invest in stock of health capital at any instant of time on the basis of a calculation of the costs and benefits, 
where both costs and benefits may be distributed over time. So individuals in this framework drive utility not only from present joy, but also from the anticipation of future happiness. People do not only maximize instantaneous levels of utility, but instead some function of present and future happiness. The traditional way of modeling this is to really think about how people trade off the future and the present. And the and one approach assumes that people are time consistent in their preferences. Let's imagine a person making a life plan today and then revisiting this plan tomorrow. Time consistent individuals uh, will agree with their own self from day after day, right? So that is the simplistic way of looking at this. Of course, people discount future based on some discounting factor. So the utility from period T is worth only a fraction of utility in the current period. But the crucial assumption is that the relationship between two specific periods is fixed and predictable. So far, we haven't considered the potential complication of addictive goods. And addictive goods, by their nature, change the utility function of addicts. Each uh, cigarette, for example, uh, smoked today increases demand for cigarette tomorrow. And this could really undermine the optimal plans for individuals who are time consistent. However, addiction doesn't create time inconsistency. You can still technically uh, come up with a rational addict, right? So a fully rational, time-consistent addict picks the level of uh, alcohol or smoking in each period to maximize her overall lifetime utility. That person knows that smoking a cigarette now creates dependence and leading to more desire to smoke later on and the possibility of serious future health problems. She just balances those costs against the upfront utility and enjoys uh, from a cigarette now. In this uh, framework, uh, uh, if a rational addict pledges to quit smoking tomorrow, then she will quit smoking uh, tomorrow. Okay. However, there is a large body of evidence from psychology, biology, and economics suggesting that humans do not exhibit time-consistent preferences in, in many domains. Instead, humans engage in what we call hyperbolic discounting, which features a lot steeper discounting. The essence of time inconsistent preferences is that the different selves within a person do not agree with each other from time to time. This is why we witness behavior that appears pathological or self-destructive. Consider a person with time inconsistent preferences. To that person, it always seems to make more sense to start the process of quitting or stopping drinking alcohol in the next period. Because when the next period arrives, present bias interferes and suddenly the period after, after the, the current period becomes more reasonable or the best time to quit. And that is one reason why we have commitment devices where people make deposits to a predetermined deposit a predetermined account uh, amount to an account for weight loss because they they know that their current plans will contradict with the plans of of their own self uh, tomorrow or the next month so in my research i study various health risk behaviors 
And I think I'm going to give two examples that I think are particularly relevant for neuroscience applications. Is that in a couple of a couple of years ago, I studied on a project. I worked on a project studying the effect of maltreatment early in life, long-term uh, propensity to engage in criminal behavior. We have a survey of 20,000 uh, individuals who report, among a lot of other things, whether they were uh, exposed or they were victims of maltreatment by their caregivers or parents before uh, a certain age early in life. And we also have their criminal behavior or delinquent behavior when they become juveniles and also adults. This is a longitudinal survey that started in 1994. So we took uh, sibling pairs and twin pairs, and we look at this quotient reports of maltreatment early in life. And then we compared how the, uh, the, uh, their propensities to engage in a variety of criminal behaviors changed in life later on. We found that people who were exposed to or who were victims of maltreatment, various types of maltreatment, including physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, uh, all these uh, uh, risk factors are associated with increased propensities to, propensities to engage in criminal behavior later on. The study is study focuses on siblings because by focusing on siblings, we can rule out things like family income or the neighborhood factors that may explain propensities to engage in criminal behavior. So I think this, this, this evidence is credible. I think we have a good sense of uh, that we, we find the causal effect of early exposure to maltreatment on later uh, life criminal behavior. However, as economists, we really don't understand what happens in the brain or what are the mechanisms that drive these outcomes later in life. And that's, I think, where neuroscience can really help inform this policy. A current project that I'm very excited about is, is, um, is looking at the effect of exposure to gun violence in utero on birth outcomes or the health at birth. So you may remember in, 19, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in 2002, in October 2002, two snipers went on a shooting spree, Virginia, uh, around I-95, uh, I-95 corridor, and within a, a matter of three weeks, they shot 13 people, fatally 10 of them, and terrified people in the area. And they were shooting uh, at individuals randomly, uh, individuals who were filling their gas uh, tank in a gas station or waiting for a bus at a bus station. So it was totally pr unpredictable. And if you remember this period, it was a terrifying and highly stressful three weeks for people living in Virginia and Metro, uh, Metro DC area. So we have actual birth records of everyone who was born in Virginia between 1998 and 2004. And we can, we, since we have the addresses, we can, we can determine how uh, close they were any of these shooting sites. And of course, we can identify who were in utero at the time of October 2002. And what we are showing in our, our early uh, preliminary results is that people, people who are living within a five to seven mile radius of these shootings and who were happened to be pregnant at the time, their uh, birth outcomes were worse. But we also showed that in the periods, in the, in the years leading up to this shooting, everything was going in a parallel fashion because you don't expect people who live nearby a shooting area 
to have the exact same birth outcomes as someone who lives in Richmond, Virginia, for example. But what you want to show is that in the periods leading up to this shooting, everything was moving in a parallel fashion, except during the October 2002 when this shooting occurred in some parts of Virginia. And again, we find these effects, but what is happening? What is the, what is the, what are the mechanisms that drive this, these effects is something that is beyond, beyond our training. And I think this is another area where uh, neuroscientists can, can inform us. Wow. That's pretty fascinating research. So I'm wondering, Terry and Tony, what are, what are your thoughts? How would you explain these phenomena through your disciplinary lens? One thing I can say is that, Erdal, the research you're describing is actually kind of research that will give us new questions to ask. So, for example, I had no idea about the in utero outcomes and how they were affected by the shootings. And so that's a question that, I mean, maybe we can understand it brain-wise. That, 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 that's a que- question that your research would pose for neuroscientists. And the same uh, with respect to some of the brain mechanisms that underlie this utility notion about current happiness versus uh, future happiness. It, one of the most important things you can do in research is pose the right kinds of questions. What are the issues that we need to be able to address that's going on in the brain? And your, your work seems to be doing that. There are lots of, I mean, I think we are pretty confident in our methodology and we are confident that we are really getting the estimates that are, that are true. There's something happening in, uh, while you're in utero, exposure to s- extreme levels of stress by the mother that passes, uh, that, that damages the growth uh, of the utero, uh, or, or some other mechanisms that lead to these kind of poor outcomes among, among children. But exactly what is happening in the in utero? What is happening? Is it is it is it the stress or is it uh, is it uh, some changes in the brain circuitry that affects their maternal behavior, and as a result, they start smoking more frequently while they are pregnant? It is it is puzzle. So uh, so I agree with you, Terry, that I think there are more questions than answers for certain neuroscientists uh, that uh, comes out of our research. Erdogan, I have I have a question as well, if I may. I, uh, you, you mentioned two uh, areas of study. One uh, with cost-benefit analysis or economic analysis of drug addiction, and the second with in utero work. Uh, let me just mention the economic analysis first. There's a book by Gene Heyman, Harvard uh, psychologist, who is talking about drug addiction, a disease of choice. And uh, it's interesting that you set it up in terms of the economic analysis, given that... Uh, Many people don't see drug addiction. Some people see drug addiction as a choice, which is what Gene Hayman says. And it's on a preference, non-preference, cost-benefit analysis, what he does. Uh, but when he looks at the general population, uh, there's about 10 to 15% of the population that actually abuse drugs versus another 85 to 90% of the population who use drugs with no problem and do the cost-benefit analysis you're describing. Uh, but what Heyman mentions deep into his book is the fact that the neurobiological changes that have accompanied a chronic drug use, which in turn take away the rational component of an economic analysis. Have you uh, ever heard of this, or is this consistent with what you're saying? No, I think that is. these are good points. And I think at this point, it is pretty pretty obvious that people who engage in this kind of self-destructive behavior, they have time-inconsistent preferences. And that is, I think, a pretty uh, accepted 
way of uh, approaching this that yes maybe it is true for some people to engage in these kind of behaviors you know balancing the costs and benefits and making informed choices and if they want to quit they quit okay and that's uh, that is that happens but i think there's a sizable proportion of the society where people are having time inconsistent preferences so they engage in certain behaviors with the plan to quit uh, or change their behavior tomorrow or next week, only to decide that maybe the period after is the best period to to uh, make these plans in uh, realized. So, yes, I think this idea that people, some people, know, I mean, most people may knowingly start or they may be aware of the of, of the harms of uh, or the serious consequences of their their behavior, and some people may manage to stop or quit these behaviors down the road. But what is problematic is that a sizable number of people in the society are unable to do so. And I think as economists, we one way we explain this kind of phenomena is that assuming these people have time inconsistent preferences. But as a neuroscientist, you may say, well, these type of behaviors are uh, lead to progressive changes in the neural circuit, circuitry of people producing reactions that, that are long, long lasting. And as a result, as a result, I think policy should reconsider its approach to these type of behaviors. For many, many decades, for example, we assume that people who engage in this kind of self-destructive behavior, they, they do so knowingly. And as a result, they should be held accountable for their, their actions. And the way to account, you know, to, to make them accountable is to, to, to punish them. Right? So, but now we know from the evidence from neuroscience that actually, uh, they may not be rational. They may not be knowing the harms of these behaviors. Maybe that should be taken into account in the, uh, in the way we think of treatment models or programs or the, or the way criminal justice system approaches to these type of behaviors. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Hopefully we can get to treatment, uh, and policy issues in a second. And Susan, if I may ask uh, Erdal a real quick question on the in utero effects as well. Of course, of course. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, your description of the in utero exposure to stress uh, with the uh, snipers in D.C. area uh, is reminiscent of the crack babies phenomenon in the 1980s with individual women who were uh, using uh, crack uh, and their children were being born with uh, a variety of psychological and behavioral and uh, physiological effects. Uh, the difficulty was these women were also using to, uh, using marijuana, alcohol, were, were poor, uh, no prenatal care, uh, most of stress factors that were important. And when research actually analyzed the role of crack in these uh, pathologies, uh, it had a very minor role. It's hard to separate out cause and effect issues in these assessments. Yeah, they have, have have you actually looked at, as individuals looked at stress levels in these in, uh, individuals who were exposed in uh, Virginia? Do we know so, Tony, what this is a, You raised a, a, an excellent point. In fact, as, a, as an applied economist, my entire research is, is about chasing natural experiments or how I can tweak survey data to resemble it like an experiment. Fortunately, for many of the topics that I work on, you cannot run an experiment. 
we cannot design an RCT. So we need to rely on mother nature or other statistical methods to tweak the data to resemble an experiment. And in our case, what we have what we call a natural experiment. The, uh, what happened in October uh, 2002, in, within the three-week period uh, in Virginia, is a perfect natural experiment. There was nothing else that was happening in Virginia that might have created such extreme levels of stress. And if there are other things that were happening in the economy, uh, they were happening everywhere else. To answer your question, did we measure uh, the cortisol levels of people who were pregnant at the time? Of the, we can't do that. We don't have access to such levels. So we can only speculate. So one alternative explanation is that, well, doctors were skipping work during that three-week period. As a result, pregnant mothers were not getting enough maternal care. Or within that three-week period, uh, mothers started smoking. So it wasn't the stress, but it was smoking during pregnancy that was driving our results. So we can speculate on those things. I mean, I don't think some of these are... To, I think we can rule out some of these, these explanations because in the birth records, you also have self-reported smoking. So we can see the extent to which our results are driven by smoking. For other things like whether doctors were skipping or nurses were skip, skipping work and hosp, hospital, hospitals were closed, we have evidence that hospitals were not closed during that three-week period. Yes, it is possible that the doctors were postponing or canceling their appointments. And, and the extent to which our results are driven by that, I think that's an alternative explanation. A very important point. I mean, everything we do, or I do, in my research is to really sort out correlation from causation. And, you know, one of the only tools that we have to answer these questions, especially given the nature of the questions that we have, is to rely on natural experiments. I just want to have another 30 seconds to mention another research that I think is very interesting. I uh, worked on several years ago. Another important question that I think is, 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 is relevant is, to ex is the exposure to not stress in utero, but exposure to malnutrition in utero, right? What happens if uh, children are not getting enough nutrients when they were in utero and how it affects their birth outcomes, but also their, their well-being throughout their life in uh, schools, in labor market, and so forth. Again, this is an area that you cannot do an experiment. And a number of economists, including myself, we uh, chased uh, natural experiments. And one experiment that we came up with is to rely on uh, the uh, Muslim month of uh, Ramadan, during which hundreds of millions of Muslims fast. And it is one month of the year, and it rotates 11 days every year. So within a 35 years or so, it completes one full rotation of year. So we got population-level data from Denmark. And we have the entire birth records of everyone who was born in Denmark, right? And uh, Denmark is a sizable Muslim population. So we wanted to compare the birth outcomes of Muslim immigrants who settled in Denmark based on whether they were in utero around the time of Ramadan versus not. Assuming that a sizable or non-trivial proportion of Muslim mothers might have fasted during the Ramadan, especially in the first trimester when 
many of them may not even be aware that they are pregnant because you may argue why would many of these pregnant women may not fast if they know that they are pregnant and the and the religion of Islam gives an exa- exemption to people who are pregnant so but they may not be aware and there is a good evidence to suggest that you know many muslim women actually fast even though they don't have to and we find that actually their birth outcomes are are worse again in terms of their birth weight gestational length they compared to muslim babies whose mothers were pregnant not during the month of Ramadan. Again, in an area that I think we can benefit uh, from other scientists, including neuroscience, but I think it's a, it's a clever way of addressing a question for which you can't really uh, do an experiment. So I have perhaps a bit of a perspective on some of what you're saying, and that is one of the things that happens during stress is you have hormonal responses Sometimes they're called glucocorticoids or mineralocorticoids. And for a long time, there's been interest in what the adverse effects of those of substances on the brain, particularly the area I study, uh, the hippocampus. And so one thing that could be happening in utero is that mothers releasing those, those, those uh, hormones, what, what's going on is that they freely cross uh, into, the, into the, the fetus. So it may be one basis of what was happening in the study you talked about with respect to the shooters in the D.C. area a number of years ago. One other thing also is there's a phenomenon called delayed discounting. Um, Are you you familiar with that phenomenon at all, uh, Bertel? I've heard about it, but I can't tell that I know much about it. Well, so what, I'm wondering how it relates to this current utility hypothesis, and that is rats and people, they have a lot of difficulty delaying a response to get, they'll take a small reward that's given immediately, and they can't, rather than delayed making that response to get a larger reward later on. And for the most part, yeah, smoking, eating, drug use has a very strong initial reward, and instead of necessarily the long-term rewards, the, what you're looking at are long-term harmful consequences. And so it seemed that that may be a part of what may, could be going on. And we have some understanding about how the brain may be changing, which would, how should I push the balance even further away from concern about the long-term outcome and have greater control by the short-term outcome. And both Tony and I have been working on a, a, a area of the brain that seems to be involved with that. And it's an area of the brain that makes it more difficult to inhibit responses to cues that are in your environment. And so, for example, if we saw a drug cue or a food cue, we were more likely to respond to that cue. We're not necessarily seeing the long cues for the long-term effects. We're not seeing that, you know, in, in five years we'll have weight gain or uh, we'll have tremendous tolerance and have a lot of aversive effects to the drugs we might be taking somewhere down the road. I, I don't know if that resonates with you or, uh, or Tony well, it certainly resonates with me because we work on that field. And I think this gets back to the economic analysis that Erdogan mentioned at the outset and that Gene Heyman discusses, is that there are, in fact, neurobiological changes, as you well know, Terry, that, that affect delayed discounting, affect impulsivity, affect inhibition, affect rational choice. And I think it, it, it addresses the issue that Erdogan said about a certain population of individuals that do not make these rational choices, and they're the ones that we see that are addicting drugs, addicted to drugs, 
and they affect the individuals that are also overeating excessively or becoming obese. I don't want to say we've solved this problem, but we're certainly working on it. One of the ideas of, of, of a neuroscience approach is can you prevent those changes in the brain? So we actually think that drugs themselves will produce the changes, that certain types of foods, high in fats and sugar, will produce those changes. And so the idea is, can we find ways to prevent those changes in the brain that make it more likely that people will respond to drug cues and food cues? If we had some success doing that, uh, how would someone proceed to try to have a policy impact with that? I think there are lots of important policy applications that may... Uh, that may come from the evidence generated by neuroscience research. Well, I think it is pretty well established, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, uh, that you know, all these uh, drug addiction or other types of addictive behaviors cause long-term changes in the brain for reasons that you will understand and I don't. So, for example, the neuroscience research has shown that addictive drugs can alter the brain circuitry that controls motivation and reward. But yet, if you look at the current insurance models or insurance providers, they tend to stop coverage after, after an addict goes through uh, detoxification based on the idea that the disease is over, right? Or other treatment programs require that people prove that they are abstain, abstaining from the, from the behavior for, for a couple of weeks, and then they are released from the program based on the assumption that they are free of addiction. But if the brain goes through permanent changes as a result of these behaviors, then I think what we need to focus on is, is to treat this as a chronic condition and change the way the insurance models approach this problem and also the treatment programs. So we may end up saving more lives if, if we treat this as a disease uh, that, needs to be, that needs to be dealt with for the long run. So I think there are obvious applications in the policy that may benefit from neuroscience. Similarly, if the drug use influences the brain decision-making in a way that makes some of, I mean, it may, it may influence the brain function, functioning in a way to make some of the punishments and incentives less effective. So, for example, relying on very lengthy sentences may not be the most effective strategy if, as you say, Terry, people are really responding to this uh, indulgence of immediate gratification, right? So because they are not going to be demotivated by this or de-incentivized by these lengthy sentences, even change our approach to sentencing or punishing people who are addicted to these type of substances. Perdola, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that, that issue up. Uh, if you look uh, historically at the U.S.'s policy on uh, examining addiction and, and drug use and abuse, it's been regulatory and punitive. Regulatory in the early 1900s and punitive and extensively punitive with mandatory sentences over the last 50 years. Now that we do have some neuroscience suggested of uh, the idea that there may be a disease model for addiction, you would hope that model would get incorporated into policy. And it's very difficult. Uh, Nora Volkoff, the director of Massachusetts General Drug Abuse, has written extensively about making policy, making drug addiction approaches to drug addiction a public health issue. Is that something consistent with the way you as an economist look at uh, drug addiction and obesity? 
Absolutely. I think the, 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 what we learn from our research and, and also from the insights that we gain from, from the work of neuroscientists as well as epidemiologists and other medical scientists is that, you know, we need to conceptualize these kind of behaviors as a disease rather than, uh, rather than something that can be, uh, can be eliminated through, through traditional measures like punishment. So the, this idea or the approach to, that focuses on incarceration or uh, forfeiture of voting rights or rights to public benefits. It is a whole idea about teaching addicts a lesson based on my reading of the literature is not working because, again, these individuals go through, through as they become addicts, they go through changes in their brain functioning that would make these kind of policies ineffective or less effective. And I think it is time for the policy world to come to the realization of this. The, I think the question is how. I think we have a good basis of evidence right now that you know we need to change our approach. Maybe we see uh, changes of approach in different parts of the country, but I think it is not going as rapidly as it should. And I think that's partly because uh, the, the uh, academic publication model that we have really doesn't make it or doesn't facilitate the incorporation of evidence from other scientists into our own work. It, in fact, discourages. It is designed, in a way, to discourage collaboration. We work on similar topics in a parallel fashion, but our, our paths do not cross as many times as it sh- they should. I'm glad we are having this conversation which is, I think, uh, as an indication that there's a need for economists and neuroscientists and psychologists to talk to each other, as well as the policymakers. I see that happening in uh, other parts, you know, throughout the country, yet, but it is not uh, embraced as a universal uh, approach at this point, in my view. It's unfortunate because punishment has a long history. <laughs> it's going to take a while to, to change that history. The, only, uh, the other issue about the the model of public health is, uh, uh, which is now being promoted, as you said, it's going to take a while to bring in. But the punishment model has such a, a bias toward uh, racial inequality. And that's probably written into the types of models that you're examining as well, as the punishment models tended to stereotype and actually punish selectively different populations. That's absolutely right. The system that, that is embedded in the, in the in criminal justice and other policies is biased in a way to punish individuals from certain socioeconomic and racial backgrounds more severely than others, which then intensifies the disparities that we see among various populations. So it is almost like a spiral. So as long as we continue with this approach, we should not, we wouldn't be able to reduce these disparities no matter what we do. You've indicated that a lot of policy is focused on essentially treatment of some sort. So you put somebody in rehab, you imprison them. Uh, These are things that happen after the fact. In many cases, and and there's some evidence that make this apply to both obesity and drug addiction. Once those brain changes occur, they're very difficult to change, which may be part of the reason why you have such relapses with respect to people who use drugs and and the inability of people who are trying to lose weight to maintain that weight loss. 
because those brain changes have, uh, how should I say, have been, they're more permanent. It's, it's difficult to get back to the, the normal state. So with respect to policy, is there, what about prevention? Is there interest in the policy world to enact uh, either laws or programs that that are aimed at prevention. And when I say that, it's not just educating the population. I don't think that's been very successful. So I'm, I'm wondering if what really is going on out there with respect to uh, policies that might be focused on preventing both obesity and addiction. Let's take obesity, for example. We have a large literature on the economics of obesity, and there are numerous policies, some of which may consider to be preventive, such as education policies. Uh, there are certain school-based programs and interventions to change children's diets and promote physical activity, for example. There are all sorts of tax policies. There are policies that have put in place in various countries about uh, taxing saturated fat, for example. The bottom line evidence from this research is that we don't have a silver bullet or a magic bullet. Various policies are effective under various circumstances for various groups. The magnitude and the and sometimes the sign of these effects vary by subgroup. There are a variety of factors that contribute mostly a small amount uh, and different economic variables may be relevant for different groups when we think of obesity. So if you think of a policy like taxing, taxing sugar-sweetened soda, so again, those policies are going to be effective in a limited sense for a variety of reasons if they are not designed carefully. First of all, one needs to consider whether, whether there are substitutes, right? You make something more expensive, whether people switch to something else. Uh, so to, to the extent to which some of these policies are going to be effective depend on a variety of factors, such as the demand elasticity. If our, our people are going to be responsive to the tax, and that responsiveness depends on the, uh, the extent of substitutes, for example. Many years ago, I think in 2001, Denmark institute a heavy tax on saturated fat. It only took them over two years to abolish the tax because it turned out that it wasn't effective because they didn't consider that many people may just simply travel to Sweden to get their, their, their fat. Or many people started getting their indulgence for fat uh, through uh, informal markets. Another policy that a lot of people have in mind is, is, is regulation. And regulations, again, need to be carefully implemented. And I have, a, I have an interesting example that I usually teach in my Principles of Microeconomics course. In 1971, U.S. Congress passed legislation to make TV advertising of cigarettes illegal. And uh, it turned out that uh, this ban actually led to an increase in the revenues of tobacco companies, at least in the short run. The year before the ban, cigarette uh, or tobacco companies earned about $300 million uh, in, uh, or they spent about $300 million in advertising. The year after the ban, they spent about $60 million less. And why, why did this happen? Because it turns out that banning 
TV advertising of tobacco products, it really didn't really deter people from smoking. The purpose of advertising usually uh, is to induce people to switch brands. Okay, so it just eliminated this possibility of switching brands among public. So you may wonder why didn't the tobacco companies stop advertising prior to the ban if advertising or stopping advertising increased their revenues? Well, there's a there's a difficult coordination problem here, right? So if I, as a tobacco company, uh, spends money on advertising, I can increase my market share by convincing a lot of smokers from my competitor to switch to my brand. But in anticipation of this, my competitor is going to spend a lot of money on advertising and it's going to go on a spiral like that. The government, what government did was to take away that, you know, that problem from the hands of the tobacco companies. There was this incentive to cheat all the time and the and the advertising ban actually eliminated this. As a result, they, they, they didn't have to spend tens of millions of dollars on advertising. We are talking about $1971. My point is that these regulations, it's not like these regulations won't work. There is a good economic basis for these regulations, and that is market failure. There are, there's a good rationale for government intervention when it comes to addictive behaviors or or, or behaviors that we call have a negative externality. But they need to be carefully designed. Otherwise, they may have unintended consequences or they may not be as effective. As an economist, I would first try to explore if there are ways to, to incentivize people towards healthy behavior before considering banning or taxing something is not always possible. That should probably the first kind of desire to see if there are ways we can we can influence people's behavior in a way that they will not start abusing alcohol or they will not misuse drugs to begin with. And also incentivizing the producers or the providers, right? Or small interventions like moving things so they're not as easy to find in the grocery store or it seems like there are many, many kinds of interventions that under the nudge theory might might be helpful. I think that's a very good point. You know, for a long time, I mean, the idea has been really to teach people to engage in good behavior, right? I mean, I think incentives work to a large extent or to some extent. But it is not going to solve the problem if, if these highly sweetened food uh, options invoke all sorts of uh, responses in the brain's reward circuit that would alter people's ability to, to, be, to resist eating those foods, then incentivizing people to avoid these behaviors may not work. And then in this case, we may have to think about re-engineering the, uh, the way we allow food companies to display their products or, or, or uh, the messaging that they use in their products. And even that, I think, is complicated. Do we want to use 
Do we want to use positive messaging, negative messaging? What kind of brain response these positive and negative messaging produce in the brains of people? Should we use the same kind of messaging, messaging for all sorts of you know, socioeconomic groups? Or should we target, you know, different messaging for different types of people? I think there's a lot that neuroscience can uh, contribute to inform this debate as well. And in fact, uh, uh, neuroscience and behavioral neuroscience has done that with smoking uh, in the sense of finding that uh, adolescents, where from 12 to 18 and then uh, even above, uh, are highly susceptible to the rewarding effects of drugs, much more so than adults. And which makes that population a target population for the drug companies, uh, cigarette companies, but also a target for uh, a prevention strategy. For example, making all sales uh, person to person as opposed to cigarette machines. So you have to ID uh, smokers, raise the smoking age, uh, advertising and education for that group. And that, a lot of those decisions for those policies came out of basic behavioral and neuroscience research, which are right. A lot of other strategies other than de-incentivizing or incentivizing us. And Tony, isn't that a success story? It is a success story. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like so many fewer people smoke now because they grew up in a period where, as adolescents, it was hard to get cigarettes or, um, and, and they were taught it was a really bad idea to start smoking. And so things are better. Yeah, absolutely right. You got to, you got to go along with her doll's head. You can't. You can't put the onus on the, on the cigarette companies to make these decisions. Their decisions are profit-based. <laughs> so one thing, and then I don't mean to be too pessimistic, but there we do have an opioid crisis now. The last uh, data indicating the incidence of obesity was the highest ever recorded at about 42% of our population. And these are things that have happened in the, in, in the aftermath of things like putting calories on uh, restaurant menus and a, a lot of educational programs, uh, a lot of attention in, in the press uh, for the negative consequences of these things. Also, the taxation thing, as Erdal pointed out, quite often they don't work very well. And I saw a joke where a number of years ago, uh, when Charlton Heston was head of the National Rifle Association, he said, you can have my gun if you take it out of my cold, dead hand. And some people might say the same thing about their French fries. Uh, you know, you can have like, right? I, yeah, yeah. So I think it's, I think, and particularly, so I do believe tobacco with, especially with the young folks and, and the limiting availability is a success story. It'd be much more difficult, I think, to do that with foods. And let's face it, the, in terms of opioid drugs, and fentanyl and some of the things that we're, we're seeing today, um, access should be limited already, yet nonetheless, it's still going in pandemic proportions. In well, terms there of the was use. that, you know, the, uh, the actions of the opiate manufacturers in terms of convincing doctors to prescribe those drugs on the grounds they weren't addictive when they were. So that might be an intervening variable here. But I want... Yeah. Well, of course, we have... We have fentanyl as well, too, right? Which I don't think that's being, well, except for Michael Jackson, I suppose, that's being prescribed. They're just it's being purchased of, of even online, I guess. Yeah, I think it's true that for many, many years, the drug uh, for the pharmaceutical companies pushed pushed uh, the uh, the prescription of these, these drugs that um, some people end up misusing. Yeah, in terms of, I think, generating 
disincentives for doctors to overprescribe these medicines. I think there's something called prescription drug monitoring programs, PDMPs. There are uh, some promising results because now we have this electronic system which really allows or gives the uh, the jurisdictions an ability to identify and and disincentivize uh, the uh, over prescription of these drugs. So uh, every time a doctor prescribes an opioid, now uh, is registered in this electronic system. So you can actually, as a policymaker, track whether certain provider is acting well, much differently than everybody else. So this electronic database that tracks controlled substance prescription in a state, now I think every state has that. I think that there's a, there's a you know, they started many years ago, and then over time, states have joined to implement programs like this. And I think there's good evidence in economics that these programs actually helped reduce overprescription by, by, by a lot of uh, providers. Yeah, and, and there's also a there's also an electronic database now tracking overdoses that was not uh, available in the 1980s with the onset of the opioid epidemic. So a lot of things are ongoing now that allows us to track both the prescription distribution and consequences of uh, opioids prescription opioids. Yeah, and I think the opioid deaths have gone down in the last two years. The first time it went has gone down for many years. So, of course, it's not clear to what extent uh, these policies are working or is it, uh, or does it have to do with the pandemic? So, you know, I don't think that question is settled. And, of course, another uh, reason I think we see a lot of deaths uh, due to drug uh, opioid uh, overdoses is because, again, our treatment models is not designed in a way to view these type of problems as a long-term problem. I think, again, I am an economist, but I feel believe that the treatment of these conditions be uh, viewed as a long-term uh, approach. And I don't think our insurance system, I don't think our current policy model that emphasize, emphasizes on quick fixes is the right alignment for effective solutions in this crisis. I, um, as the the moderator here, feel like we're going to have to wrap up. Unfortunately, we could be talking for such, such, uh, have so many more fruitful discussions here on this sort of theme of stress, drugs, and food. Uh, I think that's, that's what we've been talking about. So, but before we, we call it a day, I'm wondering, do each of you have any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to share? One of the things that you kind of alluded to, Erdal, was that there's a gap in communication, say, from basic scientists to policymakers, economists, and so on. Do you have any thoughts about how to bridge that gap? Uh, I, have a, I have a couple ideas. I think we need, to, we need to align incentives in a way to encourage cooperation. I, I'm a strong believer in incentives. And uh, as a researcher... I will welcome the opportunity to work with, with other scientists if I feel like I will not be, forget about being awarded for doing this, but I won't be punished. Or I think 
But within academia, there are many ways you can generate incentives for for researchers to to go outside their their bubble and and work with other scientists. Some institutions, some you know jurisdictions, do this better than others. So I think that's one way to do it. Of course, uh, it needs to go beyond the universities. How do we talk to policymakers? I think the success stories that we have currently are really based on, you know, the initiatives of in- individuals. Some policymaker who happens to be a strong advocate of science engages in this kind of, or encourages uh, this kind of cooperation. Maybe, maybe there's also things that we as scientists can do. I think we need to be able to feel comfortable about talking to general public. I always take pride in in the ability to talk to to a non-economist. When I meet someone at a coffee shop, if I can tell that person and get to get that person excited about my research, that is an important indicator that I am doing something relevant for public. And and that may be, you know, to be fair, that may be a bit easier for for an economist than a neuroscientist. When I read your papers, it is is hard for me to digest. So I think neuroscientists, in particular in this case, should probably explore ways to translate their findings in a way that will attract attention or excite policymakers. Because people are not going to, you shouldn't expect people to just simply train themselves as, uh, you know, with basic neuroscience jargon to be able to follow what you do in your research, you should uh, provide that to the, these people. Otherwise, uh, it will it will not uh, be accessible. So I think there are ways both the policymakers as and the researchers and the and the leaders at universities and the state, uh, you know, uh, government and the federal government can do. But I think there's no easy fix. Yeah, I think having public discourse is critical. As you say, Bernal, we have to treat this as a public health issue of obesity. Uh, and drug addiction, bring in economists, behaviorists, psychologists, neuroscientists, uh, uh, policy people. The public health issue are not a punitive or a moral issue. Yeah, I would agree that basically I think we need to talk to one another. So neuroscientists need to talk to policymakers uh, and other scientists need to talk to policymakers in order to find the ways to communicate the, the information they have. And hopefully that's exactly what we're doing here in this podcast, sort of modeling how uh, the beginning of those conversations could take place. So I want to thank everybody so much. This has been a fascinating discussion and hopefully we'll have more in the future. Thank you. Thank thank you. Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback at neuroscience.policy at american.edu. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode. And do let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to hear more about. Mm-hmm.